This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, January 26, 2015, Episode 6, Concerning the Year Something 14. Hello, and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and I'm back after a bit of a podcasting vacation. Happy Medieval Monday. Uh, I think for the time being, um, we will be shifting the podcast to a Monday morning release every other week. Uh, This semester, I'm teaching five days a week, uh, and so having the weekend to get the podcast assembled, um, I think is going to be very helpful for me. Uh, also, I apologize if I sound a bit croaky, uh, but I've been afflicted by some kind of late January plague. Uh, but I didn't want to put off a new episode for any longer, uh, lest you think this was some sort of fly-by-night operation. It may be a bit late in coming, uh, but I thought I would do a New Year's episode after a fashion. This will be a bit of an experimental format. Uh, what I thought we'd do is go to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, one of the most important sources of early English history, and just pull out all the entries for the year 14 in each century that the Chronicle covers. Why the 14s and not the 15s? Uh, Well, because the Chronicle's entries are retrospectives, looking back and recording what had happened in the the preceding year, more or less. Not all the entries were um, written contemporaneously. But anyway, so the idea is that from our perspective in the new year, 2015, we take the opportunity to look back at the year 14. And so that's what we'll do with the Chronicle. This approach produces a little sampler of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, but it doesn't really create any kind of cohesive narrative. Um, And it doesn't necessarily lead us into the kind of death trip content we would usually focus on. Um, However, as it happens, statistically speaking, a random sampling of Anglo-Saxon chronicle entries turns out to uh, still offer a reliably high quotient of murders and massacres and astronomical or meteorological marvels. So you won't quite get a story in today's episode like we usually have. Um, But think of this approach as skipping a stone across five centuries of British history. If you're unfamiliar with it, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is actually a name applied to a set of chronicle manuscripts that share a common root, um, but go on to each develop in different ways uh, as they were elaborated on or continued or even just recopied by various local scribes. Their defining trait is that they are written not in Latin, uh, except for little snippets here and there, but in Anglo-Saxon, a.k.a. Old English. If you consolidate all the manuscripts together, the chronicle runs from the birth of Christ in the year 1 to the death of King Stephen in 1154. Not every year receives an entry, and the entries go from basically one or two sentence notes for most of the items from before the year 500 or so. Um, But they gain more detail and more narrative as you get to entries for the 10th and 11th centuries. In fact, the manuscript that continues uh, the longest, well past the Norman Conquest, which in most cases tended to put a serious damper on writing in Old English, uh, this manuscript is the one designated by the letter E, also known as the Peterborough Chronicle, 
which you might recall from episode one of this podcast, which I quoted from to describe torture via venomous animals during the anarchy of Stephen's reign. As for the items we'll hear today, because there isn't an entry for every year, there's actually only one item covering a year 14 from before uh, 514, and that's a one-sentence entry for the year 114 uh, from the E manuscript, which happens to be one of the Latin items um, derived from other histories. Uh, And this item just notes that in this year, Pope Alexander I instituted the use of holy water. Uh, So we're just going to, we'll skip past that one and start uh, our reading proper with the year 514, which is the next year 14 to receive any coverage. Um, And then we'll carry on for each century uh, until we get to 1114. In this survey, we're going to see glimpses of the arrival of the Germanic tribes, the Angles and the Saxons, into Britain, some activity by one of the great Anglo-Saxon queens, uh, we're going to see the period of Danish control over England by the kings Swain and Canute, and then the reign of the Norman King Henry, son of William the Conqueror. Uh, I'll be reading from the 1909 translation of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle by E.E.C. Gom, which interpolates all the various manuscripts together and indicates where there are significant differences between entries from text to text. This translation also retains a few Old English terms that we probably should define. Uh, The first is Witan, which is the Anglo-Saxon king's council, the wise men of the realm, um, including both aristocrats and churchmen. And the second term is feared, uh, which is the term for an army raised by levy of the population, as distinguished from the elite warriors drawn from the aristocracy. the kinds of men who would be called knights after chivalry superseded the old Germanic system of thanes. Um, That's probably all the preface we need, though. Let's dive into some history. The year 514 from the A-Text. Here came the West Saxons, Stuff and Wheatgar, to Britain with three ships at a place which is called Cherdich's Ora, and they fought against the Britons and put them to flight. The year 614, from the A-Text. Here Kinnegils and Quichelm fought at Bindun and slew 2,065 Welshmen. The year 614, from the F-Text. Laurentius became archbishop, whom Augustine, on account of his holy life, and here some of the text has been cropped out by the binder of the manuscript, resuming, should be archbishop. The year 714, from the A-Text. Here Guthlock the Holy died, and King Pepin. The year 814, from the A-Text. Here, Leo the Noble and Holy Pope died, and after him, Stephen succeeded to the realm, meaning the popedom. And now, to be able to make grammatical sense of the entry for 914 in the sea text, we actually have to start with the entry for 913. 913. Here, God granting, Athelflad, Lady of the Mercians, fared with all the Mercians to Tamworth, and there built the fortress early in the summer, 
and after this, before Lamas, the one at Stafford. 914, then after this, in the next year, the one at Edisbury, early in the summer, and again in the same year, late in the autumn, the one at Warwick. The year 1014, from the E-Text. Here in this year, King Swain ended his days at Candlemas, February 3rd, and the same year Alfwig was consecrated Bishop of London at York on St. Juliana's Mass Day. And all the fleet chose Canute for king. Then decreed all the Wheaton who were in England, ecclesiastical and lay, that they should send after King Ethelred, and they declared that no lord was dearer to them than their own natural lord if he would rule them more according to law than he did before. Then sent the king his son Edward hither with his messengers, and bade them greet all his people, and said that he would be to them a gracious lord, and amend each of those things which they all hated, and each of those things should be forgiven which had been done or said to him, on condition that they all unanimously without treachery turned back to him. And then they confirmed full friendship with word and with pledge on both sides, and declared every Danish king outlawed from England. Then in the spring, King Ethelred came home to his own people, and he was gladly received by them all. And after King Swain was dead, Knut sat with his host at Gainsborough until Easter, and it was agreed between him and the folk in Lindsay that they should horse him, and that afterwards they should all fare and harry together. Then came King Ethelred thither to Lindsay with the full feared before they were ready, and then they harried and burnt and slew all the people whom they might reach. Knut winded out to sea with his fleet, and thus the poor people were deceived through him, and then he winded southward until he came to Sandwich, and there he caused to be put ashore the hostages who had been given to his father, and cut off their hands and ears and noses. And besides all these evils, the king ordered the host, which lay in Greenwich, to be paid twenty-one thousand pounds. And in this year, on the eve of St. Michaelmas, came the great sea flood wide throughout this land, and ran so far inland as it never before had done, and drowned many villages and a countless number of people. The year 1114, from the E-Text. In this year the King Henry held his court at the Nativity in Windsor, and afterward this year he held no court oftener. And at midsummer he fared with a feared into Wales, and the Welsh came and made a truce with the king, and he caused castles to be erected therein, and thereafter in September he fared over sea into Normandy. This year, in the latter part of May, was seen a wonderful star with a long light shining many nights. Also in this year was so great an ebb everywhere one day, as no one remembered before, and so that men fared riding and walking over the Thames to the east of the bridge in London. This year were very great winds in the month of October, but it was exceedingly severe on the night of the octaves of St. Martin, and that was everywhere manifest in woods and villages. Also in this year the king gave the archbishopric in Canterbury to Ralph, who was before bishop in Rochester, and the archbishop in York, Thomas, died, and Thurston succeeded thereto, who before was the king's chaplain. In this same time the king went toward the sea, and wood over, but bad weather stopped him. In the meanwhile he sent his writ after the abbot Ernulf of Peterborough, and bade him that he should come to him in haste, because he would speak with him in secret. When he came to him, he forced him on to the bishopric of Rochester, and the archbishops and bishops and the nobility which were in England supported the king, and he long withstood them, but it availed not. 
And then the king ordered that the archbishop should lead him to Canterbury and bless him bishop. Would he, would he not? This was done in the village which is called Eastburn, and that was on the day September 15th. When the monks of Peterborough heard that said, they were so sorry as they never were before, because he was a very good and mild man, and did much good within and without the while he dwelt there. May God Almighty ever abide with him. Then soon after, the king gave the abbacy to a monk of Siez by the name John, at the archbishop's desire of Canterbury. And soon thereafter the king sent him and the archbishop of Canterbury to Rome, after the archbishop's Paul, and a monk with him, whose name was Warner, and the archdeacon John, the archbishop's nephew. And there they well sped. This was done on September 21st, in the village which is called Rauner, and the same year the king went on shipboard at Portsmouth. Another account of the year 1114, from the H text. In this year the King Henry was in Windsor at midwinter, and wore there his crown, and there gave the bishopric in Worcester to Theobald his clerk. Also he gave the abbacy in Ramsey to Reynald, who was a monk in Caen. Also he gave the abbacy in York to Richard, who was a monk in the same monastery. Also he gave the abbacy at Thorny to Robert, who was a monk at St. Everul. Also he gave the earldom in Northamptonshire to David, who was the queen's brother. Thereafter died Thomas, the archbishop in York, on the day February 17th. Thereafter he gave the abbacy at Cern to William, who was monk at Caen. At Easter he was at Thorpe, near Northampton. Thereafter he gave the archbishopric in Canterbury to Ralph, who was bishop in Rochester, and he succeeded thereto on the day February 24th. Thereafter died Nigel, the abbot in Burton, on the day May 3rd. Thereafter Chichester was burned, and the church together with it, on the day May 5th. At Pentecost the king was at St. Albans. Hereafter he fared with his feared into Wales at midsummer, and erected castles therein, and the Welsh kings came to him and became his men, and swore oaths of allegiance to him. Thereafter he came to Winchester, and there gave the archbishopric in York to Thurston his clerk, and the abbacy of St. Edmunds he gave to Albald, who was monk at Beck, on the day August 16th. Thereafter he gave the abbacy in Mickleney to Adolf, who was monk in the same monastery, on the day of the exaltation of the cross. Also he gave the abbacy in Burton to Geoffrey, who was a monk in the Old Minster. At the same occasion the Archbishop Ralph gave the bishopric in Rochester, and here the text breaks off. Well, there you have it, a thousand years of year 14s. Well, pretty much, you know, disregarding all the gaps. To be perfectly honest, uh, I can't say that this experiment has given me any grand insights about common threads running through English history or even interesting coincidences to muse on here. Um, But there is one interesting thing that this particular survey captured that another wouldn't have, and that's the very last item we heard. This entry comes from an item known as the Cottonian Fragment, designated as Manuscript H. This fragment is a single manuscript leaf that preserves the end of the entry for the year 1113 and the beginning of the entry for 1114, which you just heard. So this one single surviving page would only feature in this survey for either the years 13 or 14. 
because it is just a fragment, uh, we can't draw very many conclusions about it. Um, but one notable feature is that the color of the ink changes at the start of a few sentences in the 1114 entry, which suggests that this item was being added to and built up throughout that very year, rather than being copied whole from some other pre-existing text. But this little manuscript tidbit uh, does give me a great excuse to talk about the boogeyman that haunts the dreams of Anglo-Saxonists everywhere, the Cottonian Library Fire. If you're a medievalist, this is a story I'm sure you know all too well. And if you're not, uh, you might have encountered it um, in the history of the text of Beowulf. The story begins with Sir Robert Cotton, born in 1571, one of the great antiquaries and collectors of his day. King Henry VIII had dissolved the English monasteries just a few decades before Cotton's birth, uh, which began a great dispersal of the manuscripts from monastic libraries into various private collections. Sir Robert is born a bit late to take advantage of the immediate aftermath of this, but even as a very young man, he begins acquiring medieval manuscripts from the collections of other Tudor scholars, like uh, John Leland and also John Dee, whose association with the study of magic, spirit communication, and other occult areas has made him a figure in modern horror fiction. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, I know, especially loved to drop a fictitious John Dee citation into his stories. Anyway, Cotton, and after his death, his son Thomas, and then his grandson John, amassed an amazing collection of medieval and early modern books and manuscripts. In particular, the Cotton Library uh, is notable for its texts, written in Anglo-Saxon, or Old English. Uh, this seems like a good enough moment to pause and mention also how this library was organized, which is a, a fun aspect of its legacy. Cotton organizes collection on a set of book presses, each topped by the bust of a historical figure, mostly from Roman history. Uh, and as I mentioned last episode, a book press in this sense is not the vice-like apparatus you might picture used in the making of books, uh, but is just a term for a, a cabinet for holding manuscripts. So basically a bookcase. Um, these, bu uh, these busts gave names to each press, and the books were cataloged with a shelf mark that indicated uh, the name of the bookcase, which shelf of that bookcase, and then which numbered book on that shelf. So for example, if you're looking for the book cataloged as Nero D4, you'd first go and find the press with the bust of Nero on top, the top shelf of that press would be A, so you'd count down until you got to shelf D, and then you'd count the books on that shelf over to the fourth book, and you'd find what you were looking for. In this case, that would be the gorgeously illuminated Lindisfarne Gospels. Rather famously, the British Library still catalogs the manuscripts of the Cottonian Library with these designations, um, even though the shelves and the busts are long since gone. And where did they go to? Ah, that brings us to the next act of the story. Sir John Cotton, the grandson, arranged for the collection to become the property of the English nation upon his death, and this bequest was confirmed by an act of Parliament. So the death of Sir John in 1702 marks the first time the British government took charge of a collection of books for the public good, um, and in so doing helped plant the seeds for the foundation of the British Museum, and after that the British Library. But it took a little while for the government to sort out exactly what to do with this priceless inheritance. The Cottonian Library was shuffled around from one deteriorating building to another. It wound up at Exeter House, 
uh, which the keepers came to decide was in such poor condition that it was not safe to keep the library there. So they moved it, moved it to the portentously named Ashburnham House. There's an account of what happened there in the early morning hours of October 23, 1731, from a report made by a parliamentary committee to investigate the incident. Um, this report was compiled by the Reverend William Whiston and published a year later. The narrative of the fire begins thusly. On Saturday morning, October 23, 1731, about two o'clock, a great smoke was perceived by Dr. Bentley and the rest of the family at Ashburnham House, which soon after broke out into a flame. It began from a wooden mantel tree's taking fire, which lay across a stove chimney that was under the room where the manuscripts of the Royal and Cottonian libraries were lodged, and was communicated to that room by the wainscot, and by pieces of timber that stood perpendicularly upon each end of the mantel tree. They were in hopes at first to have put a stop to the fire by throwing water upon the pieces of timber and wainscot, when it first broke out and therefore did not begin to remove the books so soon as they otherwise would have done. But the fire prevailing, notwithstanding the means used to extinguish it, Mr. Casely, the deputy librarian, took care in the first place to remove the famous Alexandrian manuscript and the books under the head of Augustus in the Cottonian Library as being esteemed the most valuable among the collection. Several entire presses with the books in them were also removed, but the fire increasing still, and the engine sent for not coming so soon as could be wished, and several of the backs of the presses being already on fire, they were obliged to be broken open, and the books, as many as could be, were thrown out the windows. Some were carried into the apartment of the captain of Westminster School, others into the little cloisters, whence, after the fire was extinguished, they were conveyed into the great boarding house opposite to Ashburnham House, and upon Monday following, October 25th, leave being obtained, they were removed into the new building designed for the dormitory of the Westminster Scholars. The Right Honorable, the Speaker of the House of Commons, came down to Ashburnham House as soon as he heard of the fire to see that due precaution was taken, that what had escaped the flame should not be destroyed or purloined, and on Monday following, the Right Honorable, the Lord Chancellor, the Lord Raymond, Lord Chief Justice of the King's Bench, and Mr. Speaker, being trustees for the Cottonian Library, were all three at the dormitory, and great numbers of the manuscripts that remained had suffered exceedingly from the engine water, as well as from the fire, and were in danger of being quite destroyed if some cure was not speedily provided. So, Whiston concluded that of the 968 manuscripts in the Cotton Library, 114 were lost entirely, and another 98 damaged to, a, to such a degree as to be defective. Now, since the 1700s, these statistics have changed somewhat, as improved conservation methods have actually brought many of the lost manuscripts back into varying degrees of recovery, so that today um, it can only be said that 13 manuscripts are considered utterly destroyed. Um, but many of those that can't be considered utterly destroyed have still been reduced to mere fragments, such as our fragment of an otherwise unknown version of a later continuation of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was stored at shelf mark Domitian 9. Um, side note, Domitian uh, apparently does not have a shelf letter because it only had one shelf, uh, perhaps because it was originally a shelf mounted over a doorway. And some of the manuscripts that weren't recorded by Whiston as damaged to the point of being defective have, in the intervening years, manifested damage that wasn't immediately obvious. Uh, and one of these would be 
Cotton Vitalius A15, the composite codex that contains Beowulf. Um, it was not recorded as significantly damaged, seemingly only having had its margins, uh, margins scorched. But the heat made the vellum brittle, and the edges of the leaves continued over the years to crumble away until the ends of the words uh, on the pages were being lost, a process finally halted by uh, 19th century conservation and the mounting of the vellum leaves inside paper frames, which is how the manuscript is preserved today. Anyway, just the idea that we know Beowulf only because a single manuscript copy survived, preserved in Cotton's collection, just invites us to wonder over what other unique medieval texts might not have been as lucky as Vitalius A. 15. And the fact that we can never really know what we lost is kind of an eternal wound in the heart of Anglo-Saxonists and medievalists generally. It's maybe not quite as devastating a heartbreak as the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria, but the fact that this was, relatively speaking, a modern disaster, that these texts had made it so far only to be lost in basically a stupid accident, it does twist the knife in a particularly nasty way. And that's the story of the Cottonian Library Fire of 1731. It continues into a just as fascinating story about the conservation of the Cottonian Library, um, but I'll leave that for others to discuss. If you're interested in the second half of this story, though, I highly recommend a long article by Andrew Prescott from 1997 entitled uh, Their Present Miserable State of Cremation, the Restoration of the Cotton Library, uh, which you can find online. I'll put a link to it in the post for this episode on MedievalDeathTrip.com, uh, or you can find it just by Googling Their Present Miserable State of Cremation. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Before we go, though, I promised a new riddle to kick off the new year, and here it is. I tell again life's wondrous story old, not born, nor did my mother me enfold, and then, though born, no eye could me behold. Once again, that's, I tell again life's wondrous story old, not born, nor did my mother me enfold, and then, though born, no eye could me behold. I'll be back in two weeks with the answer and another episode of Medieval Death Trip. We'll have a more straightforward story next time, I promise. Until then, you can visit the website at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. And you can send me email with questions, corrections, or comments at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And before I go, I also want to thank those of you who have reviewed the show on iTunes, most recently the users Square Deal and Untalented. Your reviews are greatly appreciated and heartwarming. Uh, they assuage at least some of that uncurable heartache wrought by remembering the Cottonian fire. Um, I'd also like to thank Heather Argyle and Sean for their encouraging comments left on the website. And I look forward to bringing a couple dozen new episodes to you all this year. Um, but that's going to be it for now. Take care, and thanks for listening. <laughs>